Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. The Bowery Boys, episode 207, The First Subway. Beaches, pneumatic transit. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With an investigation into one of the greatest intrigues in New York City history, the story of the very first subway in New York. In fact, in the United States, albeit a subway that had a very brief life and covered only a very modest distance. Well, but that wasn't its plan. Today, we're telling the story of Alfred Beach and his company, Beach's Pneumatic Transit, which wanted to shoot New Yorkers underground through pneumatic tubes, which sounds today perhaps a little bit like science fiction or fantasy. Tom, what is amazing about this story is not just the ideas behind it, but the actual execution of a demonstration version of this, which was built perhaps in the most conspicuous area of town under the nose of Boss Tweed and the mayor of New York City. And if you believe the sort of popular telling of this story, the whole thing happened in secrets, with <laughs> dirt being carried away by candlelight at night. You know, it's a very romantic tale. And part of our job today will be to try to separate a little bit of the facts from the fiction and sort of the urban lore that surrounds this tale of the first subway. So hold on to your seats as we recount the tubular tale of Beach's pneumatic transit. So, Tom, let's situate the listener. We haven't done that in a while, Greg. (laughs) No, this is a proper situation because we have to give a little background on what the streets of New York were like in the late 1860s. And we also have to talk about where in New York we're even talking about. Mm -hmm. This, This tale, really, in sort of practical terms, only involves a one block stretch Mm -hmm. of Broadway. Between Warren Street and Murray Street. This is just west of City Hall. If you don't know where those streets are to help you out, that is about two blocks north of the Woolworth Building. So that one block is where we'll be spending a lot of time in a little bit when we get into the meat of the story. Mm -hmm. And we should also pull back and say, look, the New York City subway wouldn't open until 1904, this right? A, this, yeah, this was about a gl- 35 years later. This was a gleam in the eye. In fact, no one could have even envisioned that that would have been a practical idea at this time. Right. So where the story is today in 1870, there are almost a million people living in Manhattan and over 400,000 people living in Brooklyn. It's one of the most populated areas in the United States, this metropolitan area of New York and Brooklyn. So what were some of the more practical 
methods of people getting around through this crowded city? Well, it depended on your social standing. You know, it depended on what you could afford. For a lot of people, they were left to to walk. Options were so limited. If you were poor, you were probably walking almost everywhere. And then, you know, the street traffic itself was crazy because the streets were packed with horse-drawn omnibuses and horse railways. We discussed this. If you're really into this topic, we did an entire summer of shows several years ago about the development of transportation, talking about the street trolleys and the omnibuses and the development of the subway. All the pleasant horse smells that accompanied them. (laughs) Because starting in the 1820s, you had horses that were basically pulling passengers behind them in kind of bus Mm -hmm. contrivances. By the 1850s, companies were laying down rails in the streets, and the horses were pulling basically like railroad cars full of people. So these are horse-drawn trolleys. All of this sounds like an incredibly congested, unorganized mess of of animals and machines and Mm. passengers getting off and on, combination of trains and horse-drawn vehicles that sounds like it was quite chaotic. Yeah. Uh, You know, we get mad at New York City drivers today, or maybe like a bike messenger who speeds through Mm -hmm. an intersection. That is so tame compared with what people were dealing with when there really weren't strict traffic laws that were being followed. Also, don't forget that today, okay, the population of the city is much bigger, but this was a really dense concentration of people. They were in the streets because there wasn't another choice. Today, you know, there are millions of passengers a day on the subways. Mm -hmm. They're underground. We don't see them in the streets. Imagine if all those people had to actually get about on the sidewalk next to you. Hailing all these vehicles trying to get off and on. Right. I mean, the, the subways yeah. keep people off the streets mm-hmm. at you the same You don't see time. them. But this is the Gilded Age. This is a city full of money and ideas. So mm-hmm. I'm sure there's all sorts of proposals being bandied about here. Yes, inventors and entrepreneurs who lived in the city and wanted to kind of clean it up. There were several proposals in the 1850s for some kind of elevated railroad over Broadway Mm -hmm. because Broadway was seen as the most important thoroughfare in the entire city, but it faced incredible pressure. As popular as the idea was with New Yorkers, what was lining Broadway? A bunch of stores and store owners who were incredibly rich and powerful. The reason that it needed this public transportation was the reason that it was not going to get this public transportation because those business owners were already well established up and down Broadway from lower Manhattan almost to the area of Madison Square Park yeah. at this time. And right? around 1860s, really up, right, just north of 14th Street. Mm-hmm. So an elevated railroad would be ugly for mm-hmm. one thing. And then also there was a the question of it possibly being dangerous because some of the ideas floated around were for uh, steam trains to come in and steam locomotives to pull the trains. But there had been explosions. The steam boilers sometimes exploded. And you don't want an exploding train 15 to 20 feet above the sidewalk, <laughs> you know? Obviously not. So if steam trains weren't going to work, you know, you could always have horses up there pulling railroad cars. But... There was yeah, an yeah, elevated were, horse. That sounds like a great idea. Right. I mean, first of all, it was slow. But secondly, you know, horses do produce byproducts. And <laughs> you don't want that necessarily happening 15 feet above you on Broadway. <laughs> One of my favorite proposals that we talked about in the Subway show before was the elevated sidewalk above Broadway. Do you you remember this? Oh, sure. The plan proposed by Alfred Speer is the most fabulous of all the plans. It proposed a moving elevated sidewalk stretching all the way up and down Broadway. It contained various lounges, ladies' drawing rooms, and park benches. So you could just sort of like (laughs) sit there on this elevated moving sidewalk and be whisked along at about 10 miles an hour. 10 miles an hour? Yeah. That seems kind of fast. <laughs> yeah, and if you if you even walked in that direction, I mean, you could really cover some territory pretty quickly. <laughs> and it did like hit some hiccups with the coming and going because you know, like when you're at the airport and you have the moving sidewalk mm-hmm. and it kind of has to slow down or you have to be careful at the end. It was tricky to get people on and off of this thing. They had to have like a sidecar running at the same speed that would shoot off to an exit. <laughs> you can just imagine. <laughs> Sounds a little complicated <laughs> and dangerous. 
So why are people thinking more seriously about underground at this time? Well, they were afraid of taking steam trains underground, for one thing. Naturally. Uh, They're afraid of tunneling underground because, you know, Broadway is the most important street in the entire country and it has some of the most important architecture on it. They're afraid that building a tunnel is going to produce shifts in foundations and could do irreparable harm and disrupt all of the commerce that's happening upstairs, up on the street. However, in 1863, something big happened. The Metropolitan Railway opened in London. It's a system that did go underground and use steam trains, but it linked the city's northern train station, so it did avoid going through the center of town. So it's not really a perfect parallel to the situation that was afflicting New York. Which brings us, Greg, to another proposal that was thrown out there by an inventor named Alfred Eli Beach. So we're going to the beach, finally, here. We're finally hitting the beach. (laughs) He was born in 1826 in Springfield, Massachusetts, but he grew up in New York. His father actually bought the New York Sun in 1837, and so Alfred and his brother grew up kind of running the paper with dad. And when he was just 20 in 1846, along with his friend Orson Munn I, Alfred bought a struggling magazine called The Scientific American, and he was intent on turning it around, because here we are in this critical moment when, you know, the country is embracing the Industrial Revolution and embracing science, and he was devoting his magazine to writing about new inventions and to really helping and encouraging inventors to build upon newly discovered principles and experiments, and really advocating for people to get patents. In 1853, when he was just 27 years old, at the Crystal Palace Exhibition, Mm -hmm. which we have a show about. The legendary Science and Mechanic Exhibition. Right, a big expo to bring together these new inventions and inventors. He showed off a typewriter that he had invented to actually help the blind. So how did he go from typewriters and magazines to pneumatic tube technology? Well, he was always, you know, following uh, developments in science. And there had been a lot of interest in pneumatic tubes and using pneumatic power to get things done. And in England, in the early 1800s, inventors had already been experimenting with pneumatic devices and with tubes. They were even testing its use in railways in England in the 1840s with something called the Atmospheric Railway. It used a kind of tube underneath the train. So it wasn't all in a pneumatic tube, but rather it used pneumatic tubes under, Mm. like in the track. Interesting. In the 1850s, London was kind of kicking around ideas to incorporate it into the mail delivery system, which they did. They kind of rolled out in the 1860s. So here's Beach, an inventor, a publisher, He's also grappling with, you know, his own city's mass transit dilemma. And so he cooks up an idea of his own. And in 1866, he starts a company with the intent to develop a mail and freight delivery system using pneumatic tubes. Imagine the system, you know, from the sidewalk, you could drop mail into a mailbox that goes down and connects into a pneumatic tube that just kind of blows it right Mm -hmm. to the post office underground. I mean, most of us are familiar with the pneumatic tube in terms of the bank. The drive-through. The drive-through bank, yes. Right. You have that little tube, you put your money, your check or whatever, and you Mm -hmm. you put it in, it goes whoop and disappears. It shoots up. Up and over. Down to the teller. Mm -hmm. And then they do some stuff. Right. And then it comes back out, and then it shoots back into the little slot, and you open it up, and it's your receipt and the lollipop. Right. Exactly. I was going to say, <laughs> we had Brock's candy. But you remember as a kid, you know, if you're going through the drive-thru with your parents, you thought, this is magic. It is magic. Where does it go? We don't know. And how is this magician, this teller inside, <laughs> communicating with us? From appearances to at least certain people, it seemed that Beach at this time didn't have a public interest in transporting humans, right? That it was all mail and packages. In fact, the bill that passed the New York State Legislature on June 1st, 1868, was, quote, to provide for the transmission of letters, packages, and merchandise in the city of New York and Brooklyn and across the North and East Rivers by means of pneumatic tubes to be constructed beneath the surface of the streets and public places in said cities and under the water of said rivers. 
What was key about the wording of this particular legislation is, of course, then it gave very specific parameters of what the size of those tubes. Right. They could only be 54 Mm -hmm. inches in diameter. But... Of course, those who knew Beach and had observed the work that he had done, you knew that this was not his ultimate goal. And in fact, had you seen him a year earlier, you would have known this for sure. For the prior year, in 1867, there was another little marvelous fair, kind of like a miniature version of uh, the Crystal Palace, it sounds like, called the American Institute Fair, which was a yearly gathering of sort of inventions and marvels of this type, all sorts of gadgetry and exotica and little thrills of the modern day. And and they would also exhibit up at the Crystal Palace. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, in the Crystal Palace building itself. You're right. And this was at the 14th Street Armory. Okay. At this particular fair, Beach exhibited a huge device, a long wooden tube, which the press called a passenger tube, six feet in diameter. So how okay. long was the original, that the tube that the legislation wanted? 50, 54 inches in diameter. Right. So this was six feet in diameter. It was 72 inches. Hanging from the ceiling, right? So it wasn't on the ground or under the ground. It was, in fact, hanging above the people who were at the fair Mm -hmm. and extended from one door on 14th Street to the other on 15th Street. And the little carriage inside, which was a demonstration, but people would get inside of it and would be blown forward with this gigantic fan. And of course, this was one of the highlights of the fair. It sounds like a blast. (laughs) Literal blast. Literal. A gust. Yes. Wait, so that was the the previous year to him getting the charter to build the mail to. Right. So weren't people a little suspicious, you know, when he just <laughs> asked for 54 inches? I mean, you couldn't fit a person in there. Well, so he has to kind of dance around a few things that are happening in the city right now. Most importantly, the power of Boss Tweed, who is uh-huh. at the height of his corruption in this particular era right now. He as being the boss of Tammany Hall, you couldn't do anything unless he approved it. You know, you had to grease his palms and those of his cronies. And I guess you probably had to show that there was going to be sufficient opportunity for him and his cronies to get sufficient kickback in the future. And Beach had no interest in paying Tweed and his cronies. He said, quote, I won't pay political blackmail. I say, let's build the subway furtively. Unquote. Meaning that he had an intention to do this, but he did not want to loop in Tweed and the gang until it was a little too late and they were already in the process of it. This might have been a little naive on Beach's part, certainly. Not getting Tweed involved in some way proved not to be a good thing in the long run. And how furtive could you be? I mean, how secretive could you really be when constructing a tunnel (laughs) under Broadway? Well, it's not just the tube itself, but the location in which they have to place it. Because the, the legislation was very clear in where it needed to go. Quote, from Warren Street at its connection with Broadway. So literally across the street from City Hall. Southerly under Broadway to the point of intersection of Cedar Street therewith or to some point within 200 feet thereof. Now, and this is because that's where the post office was. Right. Now, that's nine blocks south of Warren Street. That didn't get built the whole distance because, as we know, it wasn't a mail tube. It was a human tube. And so they built it for a block, not nine blocks. Later, it's claimed the postmaster, who would, of course, benefit from this particular technology, denied the request, at least according to Beach's public claim later. So because the postmaster had denied the request to connect to the post office... The tube to the post office. The tube, right. But Beach had already started this. Uh Well, he simply had no choice but to pursue the more ambitious option of a people mover, of a real subway. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. 
take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Conveniently, these male tubes, there were two of them, actually. They would be together and in a larger tube, right? So he would, of course, just make that larger tube much, much larger. So he was then still building tubes that fit the dimension, the 54-inch diameter, but he put them inside a much larger holding tube, if you will, like an exterior tube that was big enough for, oh, what do you know, passengers. I mean, liberal interpretation of the law here, right? (laughs) Like, Like taking it almost exactly truthful, but then sort of twisting it to serve his own project here. So in 1868, they began tunneling for this pneumatic tube human people mover at the corner of Warren Street and Broadway in the basement of Devlin's Clothing Store, which was a clothing store at the time of some renown. It had various locations in New York by this time. It had been open for a few decades. If you've heard this story before, you may have heard that it was a huge secret that this excavation was happening. It wasn't. It just was what the purpose of the ultimate excavation was. That wasn't exactly known. But there was definitely some work being done, and people knew that. People knew that something was happening under Broadway, right? which was unusual. And I think, you know, now we're used to people cutting up the street and digging way below big, important streets, and that's just kind of part of the this city landscape, but this was not the case back then. No, I mean, people were quite fearful that any kind of excavation at all would lead to a cave-in, would lead to the structures along the street collapsing even, and of course, like all the danger to street traffic. And there were even reports in the press that parts of Broadway were sinking. Mm-hmm. Did you see that? <laughs> yes, Just, I did. <laughs> which was like far north of where this tunnel was being excavated. So it, it seems unlikely that that's related, but they were blaming it on whatever was happening it's, downstairs. Right. It's part of the hysteria. How did he even carve the tunnel? He actually improved upon some pre-existing technology that was called a tunneling shield, which was an English invention. Essentially, it burrowed into the ground while also holding up the ground, or if you're in the ground, holding up the ceiling. Okay. So it would prevent cave-ins. So with blueprints in hand and the tunneling shield and a few men under his employment, including his own son, Fred, as a foreman, Beach began work on the pneumatic tunnel. But was anybody suspicious? I mean, if they thought that the tunnel was only going to be big enough to handle letters and some small packages, didn't they see a lot of debris (laughs) and rock and dirt coming out? I mean, there's going to be about 10 times the amount that they would have normally had to excavate, right? Was nobody paying attention? Well, what they would do is have these bags of dirt. They would sneak them up at night and then dumped into wagons that were sort of specifically prepared to be quieter like their wheels were a little bit muffled so it, so all of these wagons could come and go and it would sort of they just sort of be in the background and people wouldn't notice so they them. were silently carting off like <laughs> thousands of pounds of dirt imagine though what it would have been like to have been one of those workers because it was a very small tunnel very closed overhead was broadway And quite busy. I mean, overhead, you would have heard the clomping of horses' hooves and wheels dragging along above you. Very hot with just a little bit of gaslight. So not a pleasant working experience. These guys had never worked in a tunnel underneath a New York City street. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of a new place to be. You didn't know if the the tunnel was going to hold or if the street was going to come collapsing in. And they weren't just digging a tunnel that was just going to be a hole in the ground. As you'll describe in our next section, it has to actually look really nice and presentable and even a little bit luxurious, right? Mm -hmm. 
some newspapers actually speculated that Beach was up to something rather nefarious and that these pneumatic tubes could be used to hook into bank vaults and suck all the money right out of the safe. (laughs) (laughs) It it paints a a kind of fantastic image of just cash, just dollar bills, like (laughs) flying, getting sucked out of vaults. It's a mad, 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 mad pneumatic tube. (laughs) Well, clearly, even with all these precautions, they couldn't keep all of this secretive. And so by the end of the year of 1869, the cat was officially out of the bag. In the New York Herald on December 29th, 1869, quote, at last, there is a prospect of relieving Broadway. The crush and uproar which characterizes that splendid thoroughfare is soon to be abated. Merchants are to enjoy the pleasure of seeing their goods, if not themselves, extensively puffed. (laughs) (laughs) The pneumatic transit company is to do it all. Unquote. So they're hinting here that it isn't just going to be for goods and small packages, but for people. Yeah, I mean, the newspaper seems thrilled by this possible transportation opportunity. But keep in mind, it's across the street from City Hall, and they're just finding out about it at the same time. So no surprise, in January of 1870, the city slaps an injunction on Beach and his little project here, claiming that the state charter, that one that he had so liberally uh, reinterpreted that had been badly worded it had given beach way too much power to build under all the city streets and that it needed to be halted and needed to be rescinded so here underneath devlin's clothing store is possibly the future of transportation not only in new york city but in all of the united states but would anyone ever get to see it We'll get to that fight and the fate of New York's first subway after this. So, Greg, where did you leave us? We, we, we're in this kind of confusing place, right? Where there's this mystery tunnel yeah. being built next to City Hall. Well, it's done. It's ready for business, but there has been a hold slapped on it by the city. Right. And the city took it all the way to the state Supreme Court And the court on January 28th of 1870 ruled in favor of Beach. I think there must have been a little bit of political gameplay with this as well. And not just a a proper approval of this project here. Well, And ironically, Boss Tweed swings around a little bit with his support of this project. He starts out actually for it. And he has the way to introduce a charter for the pneumatic transit company before the New York State Senate because he thinks that it's going to be also to his benefit. But when he is later distracted by other potential railway projects that could actually be more profitable, he rescinds his support. So Boss tweets a little all over the spectrum on this one. (laughs) So the next month in February of 1870, Beach sends out invitations to very important people. In fact, it says under Broadway reception to state officers, members of the legislature, city officials, member of the press from 2 to 6 p.m. on Saturday, February 26, 1870. So he's having this like grand reception for all these very important people to take them down and show off what he's built. Well, they entered over at Devlin's department store, as you said, at the southwest corner of Warren and Broadway, where outside of the store, so like on the Warren Street side, Mm -hmm. next to the front door, but out on the sidewalk, there was a staircase going downstairs. So you didn't even have to go into the store? No, they they leased for five years the basement area, and I guess that they just got, you know, their own outside dedicated entrance. And they descended a staircase, passed through a ticket counter area, and could inspect the giant blowing engine that was before them. And they could inspect this giant brick tunnel that was much further down, which was brick. It was whitewashed and lined in ironwork. And once inspected, you could pass into the waiting room, which was decorated like a 19th century parlor to put everybody at ease. Because not everybody was comfortable, you know, being underground in this like big cavernous space. Yeah, it was almost like a cave, right? I mean, like many people might have thought of it that way. Yeah, and what had been most people's experiences being underground, it was just maybe to go into a cellar or mm-hmm. some dark space. So Beach had this challenge before him to make this underground space as inviting as possible. And one of the challenges was to bring in enough light 
So there was natural light coming in overhead from some windows cut into the sidewalk along Warren Street that could allow Mm -hmm. in some light. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, he had hydrogen lamps, um, which was a new technology that was seen, I believe, as safer than burning gas down below. So there was some bright light as well so as, brought in. as homey as he could make it there were paintings and sofas and fountains the, he even had a a pianist and <laughs> and a piano <laughs> they dragged a piano down to this I, tunnel <laughs> yeah i would have liked to have seen them take that downstairs and i wonder <laughs> they must have done that also in the dark of night because You'd really wonder why they were taking a grand piano. And clearly they never played it until this very moment, or you would have heard that on the street. But it does set the scene for this opening reception. You've got music playing. You have people like in all kinds of lounges and walking down to the tunnel and to the track. What you didn't have on this first opening night gala event was a working car. The motor was there, you know, and that was something that was captivating everybody's interest. The the engine and this huge 50-ton fan, and it had these two twin blades that could be turned on and send this giant gust of air that when it was functioning with the car... In theory. ...would push the car like a sailboat, getting mm-hmm. a giant gust of wind. So, so the attendees that night could inspect the various contraptions, but they weren't actually taking a ride. So it sounds like they were almost just to assure people that this was in fact a safe environment before anything was even really yeah. demonstrated. Well, it sounds like it was mostly an inspection of the tunnel mm-hmm. because people couldn't believe that there was this giant tunnel underneath Broadway and they could walk an entire block underneath the middle of the street without knowing it was there underneath their feet and this opening party really did a lot to win over people in the press who wrote glowing reviews of this magnificent broadway tunnel and it got the public all stirred up and excited to go in and actually take a ride so when people would take a ride one thing that Mm -hmm. we didn't talk about was the fact that as you were descending the stairs and to get into the waiting room area Mm -hmm. you had to pass through two sets of swinging double doors and that's because you were entering a pressurized air system in order to make it as easy as possible to push this car through the tunnel using this giant fan the air was pressurized but You know, according to um, the passengers who wrote about their trip, it didn't really um, have a noticeable effect on people when they went downstairs. Mm -hmm. I think maybe they were just so knocked out by the sight of this tunnel and this, this car and this tube. The car was circular so that it fit snugly within the tunnel itself. Almost like it was a gigantic straw. Here, right? So it the was tunnel certain, is yeah. a straw, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you have like a green bean, or you have something <laughs> that fits. The, you you have something that fits the the, the straw perfectly, mm-hmm. right? And it seats about twenty people. There are some lamps inside. Again, the, these hydrogen lamps to give off some white light. It was richly decorated with upholstered seats for twenty people. You take your seat. There were two doors: one at the front and one at the back, not along the sides. They would board at the Warren Street side. Right behind them was this giant fan. They'd take their (laughs) seats. The the, the fan would turn on with a whirl, a massive boom, and it would shoot the car through the tunnel. So that's how to get the car going, but how Uh do you get the car stopping? Oh, right, stopping. (laughs) (laughs) You could just like shoot out into the East River if you wanted to, but it needs to stop at its destination. Well, yeah, the tunnel only went so far, Mm -hmm. right? So otherwise it's going to hit the shield. So there were brakes. There was a brake like in the middle of the car underneath the the center of it. But you don't want to just like screech on the brakes, right? Mm -hmm. So what would happen was that as the car approached Murray Street... Get this, it would trip a telegraph wire, okay, that would send a signal back to the guy who's operating the giant blower, Mm -hmm. and he would flip a switch and reverse the direction of the blower. So suddenly, I mean, imagine you're in a sailboat and the wind changes, like, suddenly, Mm -hmm. right? And you have to come about and, you know, watch your head. That's kind of what would happen. It would trip the wire and suddenly the air would reverse and slow down nearly instantly. 
I should say that the thing probably wasn't going that fast in the first uh, place. Right. It sounds like a very leisurely ride, right? Well, a cor- would you like to hear an account of riding yes, it? Yes, I would. So this was an account published by Beach in a souvenir booklet hmm. that he put out that people could buy. Quote, We took our seats in the pretty car, the gayest company of 20 that ever entered a vehicle. The conductor touched a telegraph wire on the wall of the tunnel, and before we knew it, so gentle was the start, we were in motion, moving from Warren Street down Broadway. In a few moments, the conductor opened the door and called out, Murray Street, with a businesslike air that made us all shout with laughter. They were a gay group. (laughs) I like that he had to call out Murray Street well, as if there was shtick. another. Yeah, yeah okay. The car came to a rest in the gentlest possible style. This sounds like propaganda, but. <laughs> and immediately began to move back up to Warren Street, where it had no sooner arrived than in the same gentle and mysterious manner it moved back again to Murray Street. And thus it continued to go back and forth for, I should think, 20 minutes or until we had all ridden as long as we desired. <laughs> So this is what people were doing, Greg. They were going down. They were paying 25 cents Mm -hmm. to take this ride. And Beach, in another kind of genius moment of showmanship and political savvy, decided that all of the proceeds should go to charity. So even though he was raising quite a bit of money because this became a very popular attraction, you know, he was also raising money for good cause. You know, it's hard not to think of this as an amusement. You had mentioned ride, but um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it sounds like the most boring ride at Six Flags. <laughs> but <laughs> well, uh, times have changed. But, yeah. but part of it's because of the, the bar was low. The bar was very low. <laughs> The, it's because of the fantastical images of this thing. Imagining this thing makes it seem so utterly bizarre, and thus, uh, that's why it seems like it was done for an amusement. But in fact, as we know, Beach's intention was for this to be a prototype of a larger system. Right, and I think that this is the point that often gets overlooked in the retelling of this story. You know, it's way too easy to say, like, oh, that weird and wacky inventor, mm-hmm. you know, who built a one-block subway. Well, the story is actually far more complicated and way more interesting Mm -hmm. because he was really using this as a demonstration to get a charter passed by the state legislature to permit him to run throughout the city. And in fact, that first charter uh, was introduced by Boss Tweed Mm -hmm. in uh, the state legislature in March of 1870. So this same month, Mm -hmm. right? So he's really like going full steam ahead here. He has it open to the press, and then he brings in the, the the public, and immediately is getting this thing introduced in Albany, and it passes. But it was vetoed by the governor, Hoffman. Now, this is where it gets a little bit complicated, because Boss Tweed introduced it, but then he kind of turns against it. And also, the governor is directly influenced by people like A.T. Stewart, whose Marble Palace, his giant department store is just up the block. Well, it would have been in the path of it, yeah. At at Chambers Street, Mm -hmm. right, in Broadway. So there were a lot of outside powers who didn't want this thing built, even if the legislature was was voting for it. So this plan was reintroduced the next year in 1871, again passes legislature, again vetoed by the governor. And one of the reasons that Tweed had turned away from this is because he had suddenly fallen for another proposal that was out there, which should be its own show. (laughs) (laughs) It was Leopold Eidlitz's and John Serrell's Viaduct Railway, Hmm. which would have built this like massive four-lane Gothic-style stone viaduct railway throughout the entire city. It would have actually avoided Broadway, which made it popular Mm -hmm. with some merchants. It would have just plowed north up the island, straight through blocks and buildings. I mean, it would have been absolutely insane and allowed Tammany Hall lots of opportunities for kickbacks. But Beach would eventually get a charter that would not be turned down by the state in April of 1873. So it took him three years and a change of governor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but finally, it got through Albany, and then he had he had it. It was signed, and now he could 
like transform the city with his pneumatic railway. And Tom, now it's called something more intriguing called the Broadway Underground Railway. Or imagine us today calling it the Burr or the B-U-R. Okay, so we're going to live in a little alternate reality here for just a minute. An Earth 2, okay, if you you will. Imagine if this had actually gotten built. And in an alternate reality, it did get built. Because this, this was the plan. Yes, this is the plan. So this tube under Broadway, as the name implies, would go the entire, almost the entire length of Broadway at this particular time from Battery Park up to Madison Square Park, which, of course, in the 1870s was becoming the center of high society in New York City. Now, at Madison, these underground tubes would branch into two directions, one continuing up Broadway and the other one under Madison Avenue, all the way up to the Harlem River, where it then goes from an underground tunnel to an underwater tunnel into Westchester County. Now, here's the really important and intriguing part of this. 1873, right? Mm -hmm. In that very year, certain sections of the West Bronx were to become parts of New York City, the areas of Morrisania, Kingsbridge and West Farm. These would be called the, the, the Annex District. Right. So he was in this plan actually intending to link in this area that wasn't part of Manhattan, which is really forward thinking. But this this underground, it sounds really advanced, but it doesn't sound so far fetched because that's kind of like the subway today. Right, right. Good point, Tom, but our current subway is yeah. not powered by a gigantic fan. Okay. That's true. Now, the How would this even have been possible? <laughs> would huge, it have been possible? Well, we'll get to that near the end of the show. The BUR, the BUR, the intention was it would connect with all the regular street traffic, of course. These overland trains over along the Hudson River and those entering the brand new, sparkling new Grand Central Depot. The ferries from Staten Island and also from New Jersey would have a way to get their passengers onto these, onto this pneumatic transit. It all hooked in. And, of course, this new thing that was being built over in the East River, the Great Suspension Bridge, they were even making plans to get pedestrians from there onto this pneumatic transit also. Right, which begs the question... What happened? Because I don't think it ever got (laughs) any farther than Murray Street. No, Murray Street was the only area of Manhattan to see the pneumatic transit. Well, a few problems. The first one being a series of bank failures that happened that very year in 1873. Is this the panic of 1873? Which they called back then the Great Depression because, of course, it was they wouldn't know that there was an even greater depression on the horizon. It was so severe, the panic of 1873, that it closed the New York Stock Exchange for almost two weeks, curtailed many great projects that were in progress, and stymied many that were currently operating. And we're certain that it wasn't actually caused by a pneumatic tunnel um, sort of sucking all the money out of the Federal Reserve. <laughs> that, that, that indeed, all the money did get sucked out of those safes, but it wasn't the tube that did it. It was financial failure. Of course, the other big reason here is actually the success of the elevated railroads. Ideas for which had been floating around at the same time that those other crazy pants ideas for moving (laughs) sidewalks on broadways. But the elevated railways were easier to build. They also had moneyed, wealthy men behind these projects as well. And, And since they were better funded, they had more visibility and they seemed safer believe it or not, to most New Yorkers, as opposed to an underground tunnel that was blown around by a big fan. But even with the success of the elevated railways, even then, Beach's pneumatic line was actually surveyed, did you know that, all the way up to 59th Street. So they had had begun work on actually uh, installing it. Yeah. Despite Beach's continued justification that this was a preferred method of transportation and that it was much better and more efficient than these elevated railways, he was swimming against the tide or or being blown back the opposite <laughs> direction, I guess. Going um, down the wrong tube. Yeah. <laughs> In the end, had Beach, I think, had more time, mm-hmm. perhaps he could have convinced more people that this underground tunnel would work, because, of course, they would eventually work. Yeah. But with all of these forces against him, he he didn't stand a chance. I think he had the right 
place, right? You know, it was the it was the right place in the wrong technology mm-hmm. and the wrong time and the wrong time. Now, of course, New York would get pneumatic tubes, all right. But for its original purpose as a delivery of mail and freight, in 1876, Western Union opened a series of underground pneumatic mail tubes that connected their offices to the New York Stock Exchange and to these various other exchanges around Wall Street. Cool. So they were using the same principles. Yeah, yeah. But it just, it wouldn't, unless the people were very, very small, they would not be (laughs) delivering human beings. Now, the city would struggle with efficient methods of mass transportation, of course, not only with the elevated and these horse cars, but later with cable cars and even street cars. But by the 1890s, people were warming up to the notion of underground railroad systems. Of course, by this time, Europe had a few underground systems, and even underground service had begun up in Boston. This became possible, obviously, because of the electrification of tracks. You don't have to get a a steam engine into Mm -hmm. a tunnel underground. You could now electrify things and make it much more safer and much more efficient. Unless you stepped on that third rail. Um, But yes, with (laughs) Thomas Edison, they they had this direct current technology. In 1904, the very first line of the Interborough Rapid Transit Company, New York's very first subway, went into operation on October 27th. This train pulled out of a station at City Hall, just a very short distance away from the location of Beach's former pneumatic tube. Was Beach there? Was he, was he able to see this great accomplishment? Sadly, he did not get to see this glorious moment in New York City history. He had died in his home on West 20th Street um, at age 69 on January 1st, 1896. One little curiosity about Beach, though, at the end of his life, because he kept inventing things, mm-hmm. you know, it was, he was, he, he couldn't just, stop. He could not stop. And so, near the end of his life, he invented one spectacular device. He was really into bowling. Oh. And, and but didn't have like a huge house where he could have a big bowling lane, right? So he invented what's called a centrifugal bowling alley. So imagine this in your apartment. It oh my was, God, world's it, worst neighbor. <laughs> it was, it was a, oh yeah, like my neighbor downstairs already thinks that I danced river dance like every night. So imagine this in my apartment. It's a, sort of a lane that's about half the size of a regular bowling alley, but it has a loop. It has like an elevated <laughs> loop. So what you do is you just throw the ball and it goes up the loop and then it goes down the loop on the other side and smashes into the pins. Okay, so this is, you can have this in your home and it, it's it's a very compact way of enjoying bowling in, in, in near your heart. But my God, you really have to like swing <laughs> that bowling ball <laughs> to make it through the loop. Well, it encouraged exercise as well as recreation. And holes in the wall, <laughs> apparently. What about the tunnel? Why didn't he just go bowling down in his in his tunnel? Well, indeed, what happened to that mysterious tunnel, right? Right. Well, for a brief time, it also was involved in a different kind of recreation. It became a shooting range. It was tied to a local business, the Homer Fisher Rifle Company. And so if you wanted to like test out your rifles, you went down to this tunnel. Hmm. But eventually even that ended in 1878 and the tunnel was completely closed up. With the exception of a small vent in City Hall Park, this little capsule of New York City history almost became entirely forgotten. Now, flash forward to 1898, and the building that stood atop that corner at The department store? Yes, the department store building. It was destroyed in a massive fire, reducing the entire structure to cinders. This horrible disaster, of course, blackened the area of City Hall, but it did have one positive side effect. The entrance to Beach's Tunnel was then revealed. Appropriately enough, in 1899, Scientific American led an expedition into the tunnel with Beach's grandson. They found the remains of two cars, and the tracks were still there. And there's several photographs, which I'll put on the blog. Hopefully no passengers. (laughs) No no passengers. The piano was gone. (laughs) More importantly, people actually marveled at the construction of the tunnel itself. And then speculated, because, I mean, they were, the city was planning on building these massive tunnels. And so this was like a thumbs up to the idea that we could actually tunnel into the city, building these massive tunnels without causing any harm to the city above. Like this tunnel had been there for a couple decades. For decades, right. And, and the buildings were doing just fine. So a new building was built over this site the following year, completed in April of 1900. That building is still there, 258 Broadway. 
today it's apartments and TD Bank, vestibule, because they're all, everything's a bank these days, right? The tunnel remained until 1912 when crews were building an expansion of the subway, right? So it had been open for several years at that time, and there was a huge new expansion throughout the five boroughs called the dual contract. Well, this, the construction company came into contact again with the tunnel. Every time they come into the tunnel, it's like, hey, there's a tunnel, as if like no, one, as if no one had discovered it before. <laughs> but by this time, the, the cars and the condition of the tunnel itself was, well, it was deteriorating a little bit more, like a lot of time had passed. And so sadly, the tunnel tunnel was demolished so that they could expand the, the subway station and the tunnels that are actually there today. So if you For go... The city hall stop. Yeah. Today's our train stop. Okay, Greg, but pulling back here for a second, there's still the question of feasibility. Fine, this worked for one block, right? The The pressurized chamber was able to propel a car through a tunnel for one block. But would that have worked? Would it have been scientifically feasible to construct that on a citywide scale? Well, you'd have to have a lot of fans, right? A lot of huge, dangerous fans right. un- operating underground. And a lot of guys like waiting for signals from <laughs> yeah. the, the, the telegraph wire. I know that there are so current proposals in, in various cities around the world that do use a version of pneumatic power including the one that I think Elon Musk is proposing, right? From in Twitch, California. Right. That would connect Los Angeles with San Francisco in a super high-powered, fast railroad. So it would work, theoretically, but beaches probably would not have worked on this large scale. And so, unfortunately, when we're describing this alternate reality where this did get built, they probably would have had to replace it within two or three decades. So in that sense, opting for the elevated railroad was probably a good choice. Please visit the blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com. Greg will be putting up all kinds of illustrations of not just Beach's pneumatic transit, but also some of the other madcap proposals that were floating around in the 1860s to 1880s. You can also check us out on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram, where I will not be in any kind of pneumatic tubes in the near future, but I'll be (laughs) running around all over New York City this summer, uh, taking pictures of neighborhoods in all five boroughs. When you're on the website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, you can click to sign up for our newsletter. We will be promoting and sending out information about events related to the release of our book, which is happening officially uh this week and we i guess we yeah we buried the lead here the book officially comes out this week even though if you ordered it online you probably received it last week but the book the bowery boys adventures in old new york is now out it's available in booksellers barnes and noble your local bookstore amazon.com and we'll be having events throughout this summer and into the early fall some readings other fun events that we can't wait to tell you about and we can't wait to meet you And finally, a thanks to our Patreon supporters who have lifted us up, especially through this writing process. Uh, With your support, we've been able to do a new show every two weeks. Uh, More information on our blog or just go to patreon.com slash Boys. So thank you very much for listening to this show. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.